0: Welcome back to Everyday Holiness, a Faith Indie podcast brought to you by the Notre Dame Alumni Association. This is your host, Dan Allen, Associate Director of Spirituality and Service, and we are pleased to welcome you to Season 3 of the podcast. Thanks to all of you who are joining us again, and for those of you who are new listeners, we welcome you and are glad to have you with us. I am pleased to open this season with a guest who needs little introduction Coach Lou Holtz, a longtime coach at Notre Dame, media personality, motivational speaker, and a number of other things, has been kind enough to join us remotely from his home. Coach Holtz, thanks so much for being with us.
1: Well, thank you for having me, Dan.
0: So, we often start with a bit of a biographical background for everyone, so could you tell us where you grew up and just some of the important lessons of your childhood that helped you later on in life with your many successes?
1: Well, I was born during the Depression. I was born in a cellar in Fallonsby, West Virginia. My father had a third grade education before he had dropped out of school and go to work to help his family. Uh, I was born in a cellar with uh, Dr. McGraw. We had one bedroom for my sister, myself, my parents. Uh, We had one kitchen. We had a half bath. The half bath did not have a tub, a shower, or sink. We lived there for seven and a half years. There was no welfare, no food stamps, no safety net. Mm. But I tell people often I was worth a silver spoon because I was not unexpected. I was not unwanted. And I was not unloved.
2: Mm.
1: And even though we didn't have very much financially, uh, we did have great love in that family. Mm -hmm. And I was taught at an early age, if I was willing to work hard not blame other people, be proud that I was born in this country. How fortunate I was to have a strong faith in God and follow His desires and follow His teaching. That good things could happen to me in my life. So, at the uh, age of seven or so, my father went in the Navy in World War II. We moved to Liverpool, Ohio, to live with my mother's parents while my father was in the service for many years. And when he came back out of the service in '46. Uh, we didn't bother to relocate, so I was raised in East Liverpool, Ohio. But I was raised in a good Catholic environment.
0: That was uh, leads well into my next question about your experiences of faith growing up. What were some of those really important moments where you realized your faith was going to be an important pillar in your life?
1: Well, as I said, both uh, sides of our family was Catholic. We went to church every single Sunday, and after church we went to my grandmother's house. Uh, this is after World War II. For breakfast, everybody congregated there. When you're taught by the nuns, I had two great nuns I remember this day. My first great teacher, Sister Mary Baptista, and my third great teacher, Sister Mary Bernadette. It was just a great experience. I did. I just grew up thinking everybody in the world was Catholic. And, <laughs> and when I got out of grade school there wasn't a Catholic high school within 25 miles of going to public school I was shocked to find out not everybody believed in God not everybody had this faith but I have to go back and say that you know my mother was very religious I remember one time my father stayed out late Saturday night gambling (laughs) now I'm like five years old then he came in late and we're getting up to go to church and my father said I'm too tired and a, a mother said, Well, we need money for the collection. He said it's on the table. Now, I don't know how much money was there, <laughs> but my mom took every single cent and put it in the collection. <laughs> <laughs> she didn't think you should have gambling money, and we're so poor that my dad got a little bit upset when he awakened, but that was just the environment. And my grandma Holtz, uh, Grandma Hagrid, as I call her, was just a one of the greatest women you'll ever know in this world. She went to Mass every single day of her life. Never heard her say a negative word about anybody. So uh, when you're raised in that environment, you go to church every Sunday and taught by the nuns the other five days of the week, and everybody around you, Catholic. You, you just, I had a very, very strong faith, even when I was younger, e- even when I was eight or nine, ten years of age, had such a strong faith in God, and it has to go back to my
2: upbringing. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, it's it's sometimes the advantage of hindsight and, and looking back on that to recognize how blessed we sometimes are when we have those, those people in our lives who influenced us so well. I'm curious about the experience, actually, of growing up during World War II and having your dad deployed for, it sounds like, the, the bulk of the war. Can you give us some insight into that experience as a child, what that was like for you?
1: Well, when we moved East Liverpool, my mother had two brothers, uh, actually three brothers, my Uncle Walt, my Uncle Bill. My Uncle Bill was in the Air Force. My Uncle Walt was in the Army. I think he was at the Battle of the Bulge. My father had two brothers, John and Leo. They both were in the service. So the only person that was at home was my sister, myself, my mother, my grandmother, my grandfather, and my Uncle Lou, who was 10 years older than me. Hmm. He was a junior in high school when we moved there. He was a football player. And he just took a very passionate love towards me. I mean, he was 10 years older than me, but it was like my brother, my father, during those formative years, had a great sense of humor, just a great individual. Every night, he and my Grandpa would argue because he wanted to leave school early and join the military. Yeah. that's like 44. And, you know, I, I remember he would tell me about the Battle Bulge and take me see the various war movies, et cetera. And, and finally, uh, my Uncle Lou uh, got permission after uh, midterm of his senior year, went in the Navy. And uh, it was just a great time when everybody came back. But when they came back, nobody talked. About the war, when you ask your father what happened or what'd you do, my Uncle Bill, we did our duty. That's all they that said They never mm. talked about. It. Well, when you got out of the army or navy, whatever the service, the government set up a fifty-two-twenty program. That meant that if you were in the service for fifty-two weeks, you got twenty dollars a week, as long as you applied for two jobs. Well, my Uncle Lou would say, "Go, he." He would apply for the president of Crucible Steel. I mean, here's a high school graduate. He'd <laughs> apply for the elevator operator job in the little building. They didn't have an elevator. So my grandpa got mad, feeling he was living off the government, threw him out of the house, and he came to live with us. <laughs> and, and to this day, now, he passed away shortly after I left Notre Dame. But he was, without a doubt, the funniest man, my best friend. I never made a major decision. I did not consult him and... Mm. Uh, you know, so he was really my father figure growing up. But I, I remember the headlines, et cetera. I didn't follow the war, et cetera. But one day, my Uncle Lou said, "When Grandpa says something about the war. You tell him that's propaganda. I said, what's that mean? He said, ah, you don't need to know. It, it's just funny. So I didn't know. We're sitting at the table. My grandpa said something about the war. And I said, that's propaganda. He whacked me upside <laughs> head. <there. laughs> I said, Buckley, you said it was funny. He said, I said I would think it was funny. But it it was just that that was a environment. But it was a scary time, but at the same time, the joy when everybody came home safe. It it was just the most exciting time in the world. I'm talking about Christmas, birthdays, Sundays, Memorial Day. We were a very close family to all my aunts and uncles.
2: Mm -hmm, Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, it's, that's a tremendous environment and reminiscent uh, a little bit of what we're now living through with coronavirus. You know, this has been hard for a lot of people. What has been your experience like living through this pandemic, and how do you think faith might help us during this crisis?
1: Well, you know, my wife is seriously ill. She uh,
0: mm-hmm.
1: had stage four cancer 22 years ago and had 13 hours of surgery, 83 radiation treatments. and She's still with them. but now the after effects, uh, you know, destroyed the cancer, but also destroyed everything else, her mm. saliva glands, et cetera, and her throat is swollen shut, and so she's been on a feeding tube for over a year, she has a serious lung infection that they cannot cure, but they are trying to control, and mm. she's been on an IV, and now she has to do some other things on it, but what we try to do, and everything has happened, we Try to make it a positive effect in our lives. For example, um, my wife can't go out. I won't let her go to the store. I told her that there's nothing in the store that I need more than I need her. And, yeah. uh, she's not allowed to go. And she she hadn't been out. She hadn't been out of the house other than if I take her on a golf cart ride late at night, just so that she can get out a little bit. But uh, the one thing that we do do is we do a Bible study. Every other day, one of us picks out the scripture that we're to study and talk about and discuss. It's like everything else. You've got to turn it into a plus. We stay very close to our children and et cetera, but everything's just come to a complete stop. And I think you can endure anything if you know when it's going to end.
0: Mm-hmm. But
1: nobody knows when this is going to end.
0: Yeah, it, it's a challenging time for, for a lot of people. So continued prayers for your wife and her health. Coronavirus is dominating a lot of people's consciousness, but there are people who are dealing with ongoing illness for, for a number of years and things like that, so we want to continue to keep her in our prayers. Well, thank you. So you're a football coach, and you, you mentioned your Uncle Lou was uh, football, a football player. When did football come into your life, and, and what role did that play?
1: It came into my life, I, I guess, uh, you know, I, we my uncles would play touch tackle in the street, you know, when I was five years of age. But when we moved to East Liverpool, my uncle was a football player. Uh, he was a starter and a very good player. We went to all the football games, et cetera. And, and in East Liverpool, football was very big. The band would meet in the center of town and uh, played the thing and then everybody would follow it about a mile and a half to Patterson Field for the game and the stands would basically be filled and so from that environment my Uncle Bill had played football with a star as well as baseball so they, they just talked about football all the time and then when everybody came back after the war they were all big Notre Dame fans now we have to remember this 46 through 49, Notre Dame never lost a game. Now they <laughs> tried a couple of them. Yeah. But, uh, we would sit around the radio and we would listen to the Notre Dame football games each and every week. And at that time, frankly, he was coaching and Johnny Jack was my hero, number 32. I could tell you most of the starters for Notre Dame then. And <laughs> later I became friends with Johnny Lujack and One individual told me one time, don't ever get to meet your idols because you'll be disappointed. But I'll tell you, Johnny Lujak, one of the finest people, one of the cleverest and wittiest people you'd ever want to be around. Hmm. He's just a beautiful man, was a great athlete, a great businessman, a great father, and a great husband.
2: Hmm.
0: Yeah, that's that's great to hear. So what then, eventually, how did you develop into gaining an interest in coaching, and, and what were some of those early years like?
1: Well, I never had a desire to go to college. Nobody from our family had ever gone to college, let so alone graduate from college. And I was a very poor student in high school. And at the end of my junior year, my high school football coach, Wade Watts, came up and talked to my parents about the possibility of me going to, coach, uh, going to college and becoming a football coach. Mm-hmm. And uh, I had worked as well as played athletics, saved my money to buy a 49 Chevrolet. <laughs> That's all I wanted in my life was a car, a 49 Chevrolet, a girl, $5 in my pocket, and a job in the mill. I never had any of those. Yeah. And my parents said, you're going to use that money to go to college. I said, I'm not. They said, you are. So we compromised, and I went. That was a typical compromise with my parents. And <laughs> uh, I, I such a poor student, I couldn't get many schools, but in that time in the state of Ohio... If your father paid state income taxes, then the university had to give you one semester to prove you could do the work academically. And huh. I, I went to Kent State because it was the closest. And uh, I, I agreed I'd do it for one some, one year. I did it for one year. I came back. I got a job in the mill working in the open hearth in the summer of their five days. I didn't know what I wanted to do, but I know what I did want to do. I didn't want to work at that mill for the mm. rest of my life. So yeah. I went back to college with a little bit different attitude.
0: Mm. And then as you completed your college education, what were, what were some of your early career opportunities then?
1: Well, when I got out of college, I was an ROTC as an officer in the Army. I was, went to Fort Benning later to Fort Knox. And when I was getting out of the service, I was offered a job for a guy by the name Earl Biederman. He used to be the head coach of Toronto High School, and just taken a job at Conneaut. And I was going to teach history and be an assistant football coach and live happily ever after and get married to a girl by the name of Beth Barkas, who was from my hometown. And unbeknownst to me, uh, my college coach, Trevor Reese, was in the Navy with an individual by the name of Forrest Evashesky, who was head coach at Iowa. Now, Trevor Reese competed against Forrest Abyshevsky. Trevor was an All-American end at Ohio State, whereas Forrest Abyshevsky was an All-American back at the University of uh, Michigan. And uh, I, I was offered that job, but it didn't pay any money. It just have an opportunity to be in a Big Ten environment. Sure. So I think it was about July 9th, about 9.30. My wife told me she didn't want to get married. She one to date her old boyfriend and I got my good friend Nevis Stockdale, and we got my 49, or excuse me, my 52 Ford Fairlane, drove all night to Iowa to see if I could get the graduate assistantship that I turned down. It was, uh, I wanted to get as far away as I could, and uh, I got the graduate assistantship, went to Iowa. We finished second in the country. It was a great experience. I learned so much, and in the spring, all the various college coaches, we'd come visit Iowa because we ran what was then known as the wing tee. Mm-hmm. And one of my jobs was entertaining the coaches. One of the individuals came out was Bobby Bowden who we became good friends in 61.
2: Mm.
1: Bud Grant who later became the head coach of the Vikings and went to the Super Bowl and a guy by the name of Milt Drew, the head coach of William & Mary. And he offered me the job as backfield coach at William & Mary. My wife had changed her mind. We got (laughs) married, and I went to uh, William and Mary as as assistant coach. And years later, uh, the high school coach, uh, Wade Watts, was talking to my wife. He didn't say this to me, but he said, yeah, when I recommended Lucia go to college, I I meant to be a high school coach. I didn't mean Notre Dame. So (laughs) I guess I exceeded his expectations. But that is how I got into coaching. That's how I got into college coaching. That's how I ended up.
0: Yeah, it's amazing how sometimes our plans and God's plans and what actually happens, uh, sometimes our successes even go beyond our dreams. So that's wonderful to hear. So, tell us about the uh, opportunity and decision to come to Notre Dame then.
1: Well, on every decision we've ever made, we've always preyed on it. I, I'm not a particularly impressive individual. I have a list, but I'm not real strong. I wasn't a great athlete. So, I had to make all the stops along the way as an assistant coach, William Mary, Connecticut, South Carolina, Ohio State, where we won the national championship. Then I got a chance to be the head coach at William and Mary from William Mary to NC State, where we had good success, and then the Jets, which was a one-year experience, and then to Arkansas, good success, and then they invited me to come to the University of Minnesota. Mm-hmm. Now, I, I really didn't have a desire to go to Minnesota, except it was a Big Ten school, Midwest school, and you know, I had a chance to go to the Rose Bowl, et cetera. And the program was in shambles. They lost 17 of their last 18 games. The average score they lost by was 47 to
2: 13.
1: Hmm. They offered the job to five different coaches, and all five turned it down. The athletic director in charge of the search committee was Paul Gill. He had open-heart surgery just prior to Christmas.
2: So
1: wow. The president went to the alumni president, the president of the Alumni Association, a guy named Harvey McKay. And Harvey McKay said, I'll go get your coach. So he enticed me to visit the University of Minnesota. We had two children at home then, Kevin and Liz. Kevin was graduating from high school. Liz was going to be a junior in high school, excuse me, a sophomore in high
2: school. Mm -hmm.
1: And uh, we go up there and, you know, they wine and dine us, et cetera. But they wanted the decision. Mm -hmm. And so my wife and my two children and I sat down. They'd us a beautiful suite, five bedroom suite in the top of this beautiful hotel and we couldn't agree everybody had a difference of opinion and finally (laughs) I said okay we're all going to go into a different room and we're going to pray by ourselves for a half hour that we arrive at an intelligent decision and we went into a separate room we came back half hour later it was unbelievable everybody was very much at peace if I would accept the University of Minnesota's coaching job. Mm. But during the prayer, the one thing, and I, I felt that there were two things that I should demand from the University of Minnesota because the program was in jail. The first thing I demanded was if there was anybody in any part of our football program, from the trainer to the, ma- to the doctors to the academic people, if anybody wasn't there. To make Minnesota the very best of the Big Ten, they would be reassigned or replaced. That that was number one. Mm -hmm. I wanted everybody on the same page because I thought that was important. The other thing, after praying on it, I put in the Notre Dame clause, which said that I would be free to go to the University of Notre Dame if they called me. I would not contact them. Mm -hmm. I was not free to go to any other university but Notre Dame. And they weren't real on that i said well let's make it fair i'll be free to go to notre dame after we accept a bull bid at minnesota The logic being if we accepted a bull bid at minnesota that meant that we'd taken the program to respectability mm-hmm. nobody expected us to turn around as quickly as we did my first year we uh we beat iowa we beat wisconsin we got uh Florida Rosedale Trophy, the, the Big Axe, etc. Sure. Both sure. of them were top 20 teams, So it was obvious we were going to get things done. And uh, we sold the stadium out on season ticket sales. 65000 It was not an empty seat my second year there the entire time. And we accepted a bowl bid my second year. We're playing the University of Iowa down in Iowa City, ironically, where it all started. Mm-hmm. And... We're invited to uh, play Clemson in uh, the the in a bowl game, Independence Bowl. And I said to Paul Gill, "Now you know if we accept this, that means that the Notre Dame clause goes into effect." And he said, "Well, I think it's more important for the program to do that." We accepted the bowl bid on Saturday after the game, and I think it was the uh, following Monday or so that uh, Notre Dame. Uh, announced that Jerry Faust had resigned hmm. and that they wanted me to be their football coach and they wanted to talk to me. And that's how it all transpired.
0: Wow. That's a pretty quick pretty quick turnaround there for that clause to come into place. So you mentioned your family, and I think that's really important to, to consider. A lot of times, public personalities such as yourself, coaches, I mean, people forget about the marriages and families that uh, are behind a lot of those people. And that particular lifestyle, being a a major college football coach, can be pretty demanding, I'm sure. So what has been important for you? What were the tactics where you found success in developing and maintaining relationships with your wife and children during those times?
1: Well, I think that if you're not successful as a family, then you're not successful. I don't care what else you accomplish in life. Mm -hmm. And our priorities have always been God, number one, our faith, number one, my family, number two, and football, number three. For the players, their priorities would be their faith, their family, their education, then football, then social life. Mm -hmm. And regardless of win, lose, or draw during the season, off season, did not matter. Every Sunday, we went to church as a family. We then would go to breakfast after as a family. It was very critical that uh, I tried to be home whenever I could. But if my family did not need me, then I was going to do what had to be done, whether it was recruiting, etc.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: If I was to be gone more than two days, each child was to keep a diary of what happened in their entire life, academically, in school, sports, etc. Then when I came home, I would sit down with each of the four children separately
2: mm-hmm.
1: and go over the diary of what they did. Then eventually they started saying, uh, where's your diary, Dad? What'd you do when you were gone, yeah. etc." But it's just a way you have to let them know. Yeah. Our family's always been important, and the most important thing you can do as a father is always make sure those children know how much you love their mother. I've never said a negative word to my wife or about my wife in front of our children. Uh, that's not the place. It gives them a sense of security. And with my wife, when I was gone, I would try to call her every night at 10 o'clock if possible. But if it was not possible at 10 o'clock, we would think of each other mentally. It's 10 o'clock at night, and we do that to this day. Mm. And I'd say, if you really get homesick, you go out and you look at the moon, Remember, you and I are both looking at the same moon. Mm. But I just think you have to work at it. You have to believe in it. Uh, I could not always be at my children's ball games. I couldn't always be there when they were off to the formal. I couldn't be. We couldn't join the bridge group, or I couldn't be part of the bowling league or anything else because <laughs> of the schedule. But there's that, a there's a sacrifice you pay in everything you do, mm-hmm. and. They were able to have some of the luxuries of life because I did work hard and was fortunate and blessed to have been successful in the profession I chose. But to me, going to church every Sunday and to this day, we meet together as a family the first week of July. Mm-hmm. Now, this will be the 32nd year we did. When my wife and I were growing up, everybody from the family lived in the same neighborhood. Right. I mean, but it became obvious to me that you know, we're becoming a transient country mm-hmm. that we would be living all around the country and that it was important for us to get together for one solid week and so the first week of July for 32 years we get together we've done different things we've well, we we've gone to the olympics we've gone to the ocean we've gone to the mountains we've gone to Camps in uh, Utah, we, we've done different things. But if you're going to be in the wheel, you're going to attend there. Yeah. I thought it was always important for the aunts and the uncles to know the nephews and the nieces and the cousins to know one another. And so we spend that week together. In the morning, we we'll try to play golf. The afternoon, we spend it with the children. At The evening, we spend it with the family. And at 9 o'clock every night, we have a family meeting. One night it's on our foundation, what we're doing with it, what they think we could do, uh, fundraising, etc. Second night it's on the family business. Our four children uh, own a family business. Uh, right now they're involved in real estate, doing different things. Mm-hmm. The third night, we talk about our religion, what's happened in our life religiously, etc. For example, this past year, we quizzed our grandson, who was a graduate assistant at Ohio State, the one to know what he did on church on Sunday and mm-hmm. things of that line. Uh, Say, our house burnt down on uh, June 22nd, 2015, and burnt to the ground.
2: Right. And, yeah.
1: As my yeah. wife said then, we, we lost everything, but the, we didn't lose anything we could take to heaven because the only thing you take to heaven with you are your children. And that we really want to do. So mm-hmm. that 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 night on uh, religious things, and as I say, my wife is very, very religious. When she rebuilt, rebuilt the home, she rebuilt it around a prayer room.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And it's still the most important room in the house. But uh, then uh, on the fourth night, we talk about what happened last year and what they want to have happen this year. That's by far the latest, the longest meeting. Because everybody gets up, including the grandchildren. And For example, my granddaughter, who will be a freshman at Notre Dame, uh, had three publications published in national magazines mm. at junior in high school. Wow. He finished with a silver medal in the national writing contest for all high school students. And, and you know, it just I wants everybody to be able to share in those great things sure. that happened. And, and my my daughter-in-law getting up about she was starting a business she's a cpa her children are in high school and she started her own cpa firm and how well it's gone etc and then the last night i will meet with the men separately my wife will meet with the women i don't know what they talk about but (laughs) my main topic is how important it is to treat women the right way and i think that's very important for our Mm -hmm. grandson etc but it's something that uh you know we look forward to every year and uh, our family is still very very close to each other
0: well it just strikes me that there's such intentionality behind all of that that from the journaling uh with your kids to making sunday mass and brunch a priority to this now as your family's expanded and both in number and geographically to to continue to make these priorities and i think the lesson that i'm hearing is you just you have to make it a priority and and be intentional about it, and you can find a balance even in even in something as demanding as a coaching lifestyle and a coaching family.
1: Oh, I absolutely! I think it's important, and you know, we would go at the dinner after mass, and I'd have the children guess what the check amount would be. I wanted <laughs> them to look at the prices <laughs> on that we'd get dinner. And, and so the winner got a dollar. Okay. And it was, uh, you know, to this day, when we go out to dinner, they still guess what <laughs> the check going to be. And the reward is once again, a dollar. But uh, it's just, and if somebody was having a difficult time, let's say a child was had a bad experience, et cetera, we would say, okay, next Wednesday is the Wednesday. That meant that, She would get to pick the menu, and after dinner, we would go around the table taking turns to say nothing but positive things about Hmm. Luann. It had to be sincere. It had to be positive. And my daughter, uh, who lives in Indianapolis, continues the same thing with her family. She has three. But what they did, they even got a special plate made up that goes in front of the person who's being honored Mm. that night. So, hey, your job is to build your self-image and yet not coddle them, let them have frustrations, have failures. I I was very difficult with them. I was very much a disciplinary, I've never disciplined an athlete. I've never disciplined my children. All I'm ever going to do is enforce the choices they make. Mm. And so everybody had a chore. It was on the refrigerator, even if you're three years' age. Maybe your chore was to put this spoon on the table uh, mm. in each place. Now, not the knife or just something like a spoon. And you do your chores, great. You don't do your chores, you're going to stay in Saturday night. Or there's going to be discipline. When they wanted something, I, I, I'd really like to get a new bike. So I'd say, okay, I'll tell you what. You read the book, See it's at the Top by Zig Ziglar. Discuss it with me intelligently. I'll look favorably upon your request. <laughs>
0: I mean, as you describe that, and you describe also helping shape your players, I'm curious to know that as a coach, when did it become apparent to you that you were not only guiding young people in playing a game, but in life as well?
1: Well, I don't remember exactly when it happened, but when you realize that a lot of people can be successful, you make a lot of money, and when you die, that ends. But there are also people in this world who are significant.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And significance is when you help other people be successful. And when you do that, that lasts many a lifetime. And the people that are in a leadership role have a chance to really be significant teaching other people how to be successful, particularly coaches and teachers fall into that vein. Uh, I can't begin to tell you how many letters of thanks I wrote. Glenda Dunlop, who was my English teacher in my sophomore year in high school, a very disciplined, strict young lady, mean, nasty. <laughs> but she cared about you learning English. And as I said, I was a poor student when I went to college. The one thing I could do was speak and write adequately with the English language because of her. If it was not for her, I would have had no chance to succeed in college because I didn't have the academic background. But you you remember the people that were the toughest on us, the most demanding, and believed in you the most. And uh, I'll never forget, I got a C, I want to say it was either, I think it was a C plus in her English class. It was the third highest grade in her class. Mm -hmm. I mean, she was tough, she was demanding, but... It's just you have a chance to really influence people. And so all I ever tried to do, I never felt I coached football. I felt I coached life. Mm -hmm. The same things that would enable you to be successful on the football field would enable you to be successful in, in life as well. As a businessman, as a father, as a husband, spouse, whatever else the case may be, let's just learn to make good choices.
0: Yeah, that's helpful. Thank you. So to your time at Notre Dame... (laughs) <laughs> there were a number of experiences that you had. Uh, any any ones that you'd pick out as some of the most memorable, both on and off the football field?
1: Well, just being part of Notre Dame, uh, you know, going to the grotto, going into Sacred Heart Church, uh, going into the crypt downstairs, which I tried to get to Mass every day as much as I possibly could, just the pep rallies, the bands, the games, the people you meet, but more importantly, the students. I would go around every dorm in the spring, did it for almost the entire time there, and uh, talk to the students about our football program, about Notre Dame, and answer any questions that they w- would want. And the people that had the most questions was Lewis Dorm. Uh, uh, <laughs> I remember that as our women, but you know football was so important yet at the same time it's not notre dame no notre Dame's more than just football sure. and well you know we had so many big games uh our schedule in 88 when we won it we beat six teams in the final top 10 mm-hmm. in 89 we beat seven different conference champions mm. seven conference i mean and when Penn State canceled us when they joined the Big Ten, who did we schedule? We scheduled Florida State because they were one of the best at that time. Yeah, I, you know, they talked about scheduling Miami, but the intensity and the rivalry was too severe. Whereas Florida State had a great program as well, but that was just her mentality. So every week w- was a big game. Mm-hmm. Yeah, every every week we're playing somebody that's really good, and as I would say to the team. Now, when we play them on Saturday, they're really good. But you also understand this. this is going to be the highlight of their entire year. Mm-hmm. They're going to be so excited to play against Notre Dame. So you can get best assured. We're going to get the best shots they have. But I said, there's only one thing that would motivate me more than to be able to play against Notre Dame is to be able to play for Notre Dame. Mm-hmm. So nobody should be more motivated to play than we should because you represent our lady on the dome and how fortunate blessed you are when you hit that sign play like a champion today and the students would stand in line i mean for for maybe one or two nights in line to get tickets to the game in the student section Mm -hmm. and so Many a time I would go buy donuts and take them to the students who have been up all night standing <laughs> in line. I'm saying, my goodness, if they're going to stay in line, least I can do is bring them some donuts. So we did that quite often. But just just the whole experience walking out of the office at Notre Dame, it's midnight, you're tired, you're worn out, it's snowing, it's June. <laughs> and you look up at the lady on the dome and it just... Uh, just being part of it, being able to go to confession any day you want at 1115 or at five o'clock, uh, being able to go to mass, just being around the, the entire environment. is, and, and to be hired by Father Esberg and Father Joyce and to have the wonderful relationship I had with them until their death. I, I've been blessed in so many different ways. And as I say, it, uh, people ask me about Notre Dame and say, if you've been part of it. No explanations necessary. If you haven't been part of it, no explanation will suffice. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, I just find myself nodding along because so many of us who have gone to school here and, and work here now, it's a true blessing to to be part of it and, and something that you're always wanting to share. And the faith, obviously, is a central pillar to who we are here and, and why we are do what we do with Faith in D in the podcast. So it's, it's a real blessing. I, I feel the same way. You mentioned your house burning to the ground, and that was a a tragedy. A lot of people were praying for you and and glad that you and your wife were okay. But, you know, inevitably we live long enough, and suffering and sacrifice are a part of your life. So whether it was that moment or other instances of suffering, how has your faith guided you during challenging times? Well,
1: I don't know how you get through it without strong faith. If you want to make God laugh, you tell Him what your plans are. (laughs) But all my life, I, for example, God answers prayers. He doesn't always answer them the way you want. I would pray to make me a great athlete. I wasn't a great athlete. I, I did play college football at day, but I wasn't a great athlete. But he put me in a profession that for 35 years, I was involved in some of the biggest games, some of the greatest excitement, the environment, etc. With that being said, that you just have to have a faith when difficult things happen. But we all we all have that foxhole religion. I can't begin to tell you how many times I prayed when Michigan had to bow on our three-yard line. <laughs> oh, God. oh, God, you stop them. I'll change my whole life. Uh, and, and we have that mentality. But I think it was about a month before the house burned down. And this actually happened. We're driving into the home, and I said to my wife, when you're in East Airport, Ohio High School, did you ever dream you'd belong or live in a home this beautiful? Mm-hmm. And my wife is very religious. She said, this home doesn't belong to us, Lou. It belongs to God. And she said, everything we have belongs to God. We have it because he's been generous and looked upon us very favorably. And she believes that. Mm-hmm. So a month later, the house burning down, I said, God, yeah. Ought to do something about your house, you know. <laughs> but there we were Sunday morning, eight o'clock in the morning, nothing but smoldering ashes, mm. and she's crying. We're there in our bathroom. That's all we had. And I said to her, "You have twenty-four hours to cry, to wallow in self-pity, to feel sorry for yourself, and to moan why us. But come eight o'clock Monday morning, we're never going to look back." Mm. We're going to build it bigger and better than we ever have before. And Lord put eyes in front of her head rather than back so we can see where we're going rather than where we've been. And I gave her an unlimited budget to rebuild the house and she exceeded it. <laughs> but I will say this. I've never had anything in my entire life happen that did not turn out to be a positive if we reacted favorably to it. <laughs> she rebuilt the home around her prayer room and as I said, she's been confined to the home basically for a year, year and a half. And several months ago she said to me, I'm so glad our house burned down because it's such a peaceful place for me to be. She said there's nowhere else in the world I'd rather be than to be here. Wow. And it just it's gonna turn out to be positive. Even even this as difficult as it is, something good will come out of this. I, I firmly believe that.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Coach, you've shared a couple of stories with us already about important people, holy people in your life who taught you about holiness. And of course, we call this podcast Everyday Holiness. So we are always interested to hear from our guests' instances and principles of holiness that they have seen. As you think about examples or stories of holiness, does anything else come to mind as a particularly memorable moment? That exhibited holiness to you?
1: We played, I'm coaching in South Carolina and I I had no intention of coaching when I left Notre Dame again, but they program was in shambles, and they were being threatened by the to be thrown out of the SEC, so I went there. Mm-hmm. And we played the first football game played after 9-11. nine mm. eleven. We're playing Mississippi State on national TV. Remember, all the games were canceled yeah. the week before. And so we always had a chapel service the night before the game. And we'd have 98, 99% attendance. The team chapel was a guy named Adrian Dupre, and I'll never forget. He said to the football team last Saturday or last 9-11, a lot of brave firemen and policemen went into a burning building and saved people's lives. He said, they saved hundreds of lives. He said, can you imagine how good you would feel to save somebody's life? He then turned over and said, take how much greater it is to save somebody's soul. You save a life, that's for years. You save a soul for eternity.
0: Hmm.
1: Never forgotten that.
0: Yeah, that's, uh, that's a beautiful story. Thank you for sharing it. So you, you mentioned you coached for many, many years, but that's not a part of your life now. And so what was the adjustment like for you when you no longer had the outlet of coaching and, and all the relationships, at least actively, with, with players?
1: Well, I, I think that everybody needs four things in your life. Everybody needs something to do. Everybody needs someone to love. Everybody needs someone to believe in, and our case, is believing in Jesus Christ.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And everybody needs something to hope for. And you reach a point in your life where you say, you know, I'm never again going to do anything that was as important to many people as I once did. And Father Hesburgh said it best. He said, I'm going to do everything I possibly can. And I'm going to do it the very best of my ability. And I'm going to do it for as long as I possibly can, but no longer am I going to worry about the things I could no longer do. And I try to be involved in other things. I, you know everything's been canceled for four months now <laughs> into the future, but I, I, I did TV because it keeps your mind alerted. It was enjoyable, but there comes a time where you step aside and let the younger people do it mm-hmm. uh, I'm Vice President of a company called Zotech in Indianapolis. I'm Vice President charge of Team Building. We've been there for four years approach our thousand employees the same way I did a hundred football players about building a trust and a commitment to excellence and caring for each other so You know, I'm going to be as productive as I possibly can. I'm going to live to the day I die. Mm -hmm. I do not want my tombstone to say, here lies Lou Holt, born January 6, 1937, died April 2, 2020, buried March 19, 2025. Mm -hmm. I'm going to live to the day I die, and I'm going to do everything the very best of my ability, as Father Hesper said, but I'm no longer going to worry about the things I can't do. And God gives you Alzheimer's, so you can't remember how far you used to hit the golf ball. Ten years ago, as a eight handicap, and today I can't hit the ball very far. But I, I still am going to find things that I can enjoy in life.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, that's a, that's a great perspective because it, and change is inevitable as we make our way through life. And to I think keep that positive outlook is. Is really important. I am curious, just because a lot of people know you from your time at ESPN, what was the difference like uh, being a major college football coach and then commentating on major college football?
1: Well, on TV, you just talk to you, think of something to say. <laughs> what, what happened? Uh, I, I signed a little contract with them, no big deal. I'm up there the first week, and on Friday night, a gentleman who was on the set with Reese Davis and Mark May walked off the set in anger and they fired him. They said to me, Go sit in the middle chair Saturday today till we figure out what we're going to do next week. So huh. no, I'm going to sit in the middle chair. I'm not going to say anything. I don't know Reese. I don't know Mark. And pretty soon I thought, I can't let Mark get away with that. <laughs> <laughs> Ten years later, see, on TV, we not only informed, we also entertained, you know, whether it was Dr. Lou, whether it was Final Verdict, whatever else the case may be. But our differences with Mark May on TV were authentic. We had no teleprompter, we had no script, and we had no rehearsal. Everything had to come from your mind mentally. Huh. But our difference of opinion was authentic because Mark was a player and I was a coach. Hmm. He made suggestions, I made decisions. He (laughs) showered after work, I showered before work. He signed a paycheck on the back, I signed it on the front. You know, (laughs) you just have a different perspective. He's a wonderful guy. I I, I love him to death and we still stay in touch, both he and Reese. But I would say to him on TV all the time, Mark, I'd love to agree with you, but if I did, we'd both be wrong. (laughs) And that's not good for TV, but I, I just think it, you're on there and you try to give a different perspective. You speak from your heart on the way you feel and what's going through the coach's mind and the decisions that the players. And as I'd say, every team, you, every week you have a different team and nothing's more truthful than that. Uh, just because you played great one week doesn't mean you're going to play well the next week. Mm-hmm. But uh, it was fun to do that. But uh, do I miss it? No, absolutely not.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, again, a time in your life and an experience, but you've continued to stay busy. You've also been a well-known mo- motivational speaker at times, and I'm hearing some of the, the topics uh, as as we've talked that you probably discuss with audiences, but any other important messages that you tried to convey to your audience? Well,
1: just basically, wherever we are, it's because of choices we make. And you make good choices by following three rules. I mean, don't complicate life, you know. We have federal laws, county laws, state laws, corporate laws, bylaws, in laws, and outlaws. But you only need three laws. Everybody listen to this. It's not complicated. Law number one do what's right. Mm-hmm. You have any doubt? Get out the Bible. There's never a right time to do the wrong thing. There's never a wrong time to do the right thing. You do what's right. And it's so critical. Do what's right. Not because somebody's looking, but you know what's right and what's wrong. And. Character is what you do when nobody's looking. But if you do what's right, you build a trust with people. And if you have a trust, then you can have a relationship. You cannot have a relationship if it's not based on trust. And the only way you can ever get trust is to do the right thing. Rule number two is do everything the very best you're ability. Not everybody can be all American. Not everybody can be all conference. Not everybody can be first team but everybody can be the best that they're capable of being. That's all I ask. Mm-hmm. And the last, because if you do that, then everybody knows you're totally committed to excellence. And the last rule we have is show people you care. That's all, just showing people you genuinely care. Every Everybody needs a kind word, a smile. My wife and I are opposites night and day, and she has done one interview in her entire life, because she always said, one person in limelight's enough. <laughs> the only interview she's ever done was because it had to do with cancer. Now, this was maybe 15 years ago. Mm-hmm. And they said to her, Miss Holtz, what'd you learn from having cancer? She said, I learned how much my family loved me. Mm-hmm. Uh, we didn't love her anymore, but we showed it. But as a prime example, why is it we wait till somebody's funeral or something to say something nice? Mm-hmm and so that's been a great lesson, and all I ever tried to do was build a trust among our players, a total commitment to excellence, a genuine love for one another, you build a loving organization, I, I mean, every team I had at Notre Dame, we didn't always win the national championship, but I'll tell you what, our 11-year run there was as good as anybody's in the country at that time, because we trusted each other, we're committed, and we cared, and there, there's a statue of me at Notre Dame. I guess they need a place for the pigeons to land, but <laughs> when you look at it, the most important thing is to say, uh, look at the pedestal. There's three words on the pedestal. Trust, commitment, love. I didn't put them there. The players put them there, Notre Dame put them there because that was our values. Mm-hmm. That was our core principles. Those are the things that we truly believed in. And so you follow those three rules, you always make good choices. There's not a we go by, my secretary will verify this, that I don't hear from five former players at mm-hmm. least a week. Mm-hmm. After all these years, I still hear from them. And those same three rules have enabled them, enabled them to play in the NFL, but more importantly, be business people, to be husbands, spouses, and to genuinely care about others.
0: Yeah. Well, I think you embody those values so much. You mentioned your foundation and your generosity. You and your wife—that's very much a part of who you are. What's been so important to you about giving back, and, and how you can?
1: Well, you can't possibly repay the many people that have helped you along the way. I mean, uh, I, I think about all the people who played such a substantial role in my life. You know, from my teachers and coaches, but the people around town. Uh, the the business people when I was in high school they genuinely cared about you showed an interest in it and followed you and I I go to college I remember I was thumbing back to college it was a very depressing time in my life I I remember vividly because I'd just gone home to find out my parents were in the process of going through a divorce they never followed through with it Mm. but they were talking about it then and that, that was shattering to me yeah And it was in January, thumbing back, and I'm on uh, Route 5, and uh, there's the entrance to the turnpike. And I got off and got a ride there, and I'm still 25 miles from Kent State. It's snowing. I'm on a straightaway, no cars are on the road because it's snowing. and, And two guys were in a restaurant behind me, and they came out and they said, Where are you trying to go? I said, I'm trying to get to Kent State. They said, Well, you aren't going to get there. They said, we'll give you a ride. In those days, you trusted people. Mm-hmm. I jumped to there. They drove me. I said, I don't have any money. Either. Okay. He said, just do a favor for somebody else. Right. I thought about that so many times. Right. There I was stranded, very desolate, very depressed. And these people went out of their way to drive me 20-some miles one way because I had have problems. Mm. And I thought about that so many times. I could never repay them. But then I think about all the people that have helped me along the line, et cetera. And so there's nothing wrong with making money. Nothing. As long as you make it honestly, mm-hmm. spend it judiciously, and are gener- generous with it. And with God's blessed us, then we have an obligation to help other people. I mean, we've been down scholarships. Uh, I don't know. I think we have Fort Notre Dame. We have them at Kent State. We have them at. Uh, South Carolina, Arkansas, Portland, Holy Cross, Ave Maria, Benedictine, Franciscan University. I mean, we just have an obligation to give back. Yeah. And I find the more you give, the more you, 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 you will receive.
0: Well, and it reminds me of what you said in terms of the influence that you have on your children, the legacy that you leave with them, and and kind of the ripple effect that you can have on a number of people's lives. I can only imagine the number of lives that you have touched through philanthropy, through just your positive messaging and the influence that you have with with personal relationships that, in the end, those are the things that that do last and are, are most important, I think.
1: Well, yeah, just try to follow the Bible. As I say, the one positive thing is about being shut in, so to speak, or quarantined, is my wife and I have really taken time for Bible study. She belongs to a Bible study group. They started 20-some years ago in the neighborhood, and they have the maximum number now, 24. They can't meet because of quarantine, but we have a Bible study, as I say, every day at, uh, at 10 o'clock. And, You know, there's nothing to watch on TV, so you start talking to your wife, cetera, but you find other things to do, and uh, one of the biggest problems I worry about at my age is my birthday candles used to cost more than a cake, but that's not the case anymore, because now it takes two cakes to get all the candles on, but uh, I I worry about the inactivity, what it does to your mind, Mm -hmm. the ability to think, etc., so... Try to play chess, do different things to keep your mind active. Mm-hmm.
0: Well, you're still a very sharp man. I've been so impressed with your stories and recall of so many of the people that influenced you and, and are grateful for the positive, positive influence you've been on Notre Dame and so many other places. So, Coach, thanks so much for joining us for this talk. I, I really enjoyed it. it had a lot of laughter here, and I think our audience will enjoy it as well. So thanks for being with us.
1: Uh, thank you for having us, and thank you for doing God's work.
0: Absolutely. Well, that concludes this episode of Everyday Holiness, a Faith Indie podcast. As always, we invite you to subscribe to our daily gospel reflection at faith.nd.edu. There you'll receive notifications of future episodes of this podcast, as well as a reflection each day on the scriptures. We thank you for joining us, and we hope to have you with us next time. Thank mm-hmm. you.